Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast about all things therapy, therapists, for therapists. I, 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 I pause here because I don't know if we can call today's guest still a therapist. He's How licensed, but he is not... Practicing. How dare you, Kurt? We are once again joined by Dr. Ben Caldwell, a longtime friend of the show and returning for like somewhere around his fourth appearance. But talking to us today about some stuff going on in the California Board of Behavioral Sciences and their attempts to go back to the dark ages in <laughs> some some legislation that they're crafting. This is important for all of our listeners because in preparing for this episode, I I asked Ben, is this just where licensing boards are creating solutions to problems that don't exist? But let's allow Ben to introduce himself. It's always good to be with you both. I'm Ben Caldwell. I'm the Education Director for Simple Practice Learning, and I am, in point of fact, a California licensed MFT. Yeah, you too. <laughs> so at the core of this is a subcommittee meeting, which th these are fantastic meetings. If you've ever seen TV shows like Parks and Rec, where there are open meetings where the government discusses things and people are allowed to show up. And many of these meetings are kind of lackluster as far as entertainment value, but important stuff happens at them. And recent telehealth subcommittee meeting of the California BBS happened here a couple of weeks ago. And Dr. Caldwell was there and relayed some information of some discussions as far as with COVID restrictions changing and some stories that we're going to share in this episode today that are going to illustrate why this is important enough for us to dedicate an episode to what should hopefully have been a rather boring meeting. Yeah, those those meetings are, they are not compelling television, I'll put it th that way. But it is important for us to be involved and aware of what's happening there because that that is how the proverbial sausage gets made when it comes to the policies that uh, ultimately impact our work and, and uh, can move us forward, backward, or sideways, kind of depending on what gets done. Uh, licensing boards generally around the country, they have open meetings. Uh, they're, they're public meetings. Anybody can show up. Anybody can be heard. And in general, I, I think boards are actually pretty responsive to the 
questions, needs, and desires of those people who do show up. It's just that very, very few people do. You know, the BBS governs now more than 100,000 licensees and registrants across its different license and registration types in California. And most of these meetings, there's five or 10 uh, licensees or registrants who actually show up. Even if it means that the meetings are going to take longer and there's going to be a little more argument on both sides, it's probably better for more people to be at those meetings and and be heard and have some influence on the process. So I think this is a point of advocacy. And so I think one of the calls to action, I'll just put it out right now, is if you are a registrant or a licensee in a state, (laughs) but especially California, since that's where we're talking about, like, go to some of these meetings or at least understand what's happening at these meetings so that if you want to make a statement, you can. But to, to frame this a little bit, I guess, I, I'm hearing that in this meeting that there are COVID waivers that were coming to a close that people have a response to. There was also some ideas around telehealth and telesupervision. So, so what is it actually that we're talking about? And what should people be paying attention to right now as COVID waivers are coming to a close? So uh, across the country, there have been emergency orders that were put into place around the beginning of the pandemic that allowed for things like the increased use of interstate practice, that allowed for increased use of telehealth with with less restriction, uh, and, and that allowed for some other kinds of intended to be temporary changes that made it easier for us to engage in continuity of care as everybody was stuck at home. Where we are now is that a lot of those emergency orders either have expired or are going to be expiring in the relatively near term. Now, California has hung on to a lot of those emergency orders and waivers longer than some other states have. But even in California, the waivers that have been issued by the Department of Consumer Affairs throughout the pandemic those are, it sounds like, kind of in the process of winding down. And one of those waivers that has been really attention-getting in California is the waiver that allows associates in private practice settings to uh, engage in online video supervision. If you go pre-pandemic and you look at sort of the the normal California law, video-based supervision is only allowed for uh, associates in nonprofit and other what the law calls exempt settings. Uh, Private practice doesn't typically allow it. There was this waiver put into place at the beginning of COVID to allow for uh, video-based supervision in private practice. That waiver has been extended 60 days at a time throughout the pandemic. And the current extension of that waiver is set to expire at the end of October. Uh, I know that Camp and others are continuing to advocate for additional uh, extensions to that waiver, uh, but the Department of Consumer Affairs ultimately makes the decision, and they, it sounds like, had a, a meeting with some of their boards and bureaus, and what the BBS said in the most recent telehealth committee meeting was that it is, and I wrote this down because it, the language struck me, quote, very highly unlikely, unquote, that there will be a further extension of that waiver. So I'm aware of some efforts towards legislation to make that piece more permanent. And assuming that there's no substantial opposition to it, 
a, a law like that would go into effect in 2023 based on at the earliest based on the way that California's legislative system works. Correct. That was one of the things that was actively discussed uh, in that telehealth committee meeting. And they talked about kind of what the policy should be on an ongoing basis for allowing remote supervision across all work settings. I think there's general consensus that remote supervision should be allowed across all work settings. But there is this anxiety. And I keep asking folks for hard evidence to back it up. And I, I have yet to see any, not to say it doesn't exist, but I haven't seen any, where some board members, some practitioners, uh, some people are, are just weirdly nervous about allowing remote supervision across all work settings. And to the point where one of the proposals that the BBS was, was weighing out in this committee meeting was a 50-50 model where remote supervision would be allowed across all work settings, but you'd have to do no more than 50% of supervision remotely. And the other half would have to be in person, which eliminates a lot of the prospective benefit of uh, telehealth supervision or, or telesupervision. And thankfully, of those people who did show up to the committee meeting, to a person, almost universally, they all dragged the committee for even considering this concept because it, it doesn't make sense. It, it just wouldn't work. And where they landed, I think the proposal that they're going to carry forward is to allow telesupervision across all work settings, including private practice, conditioned upon there being at least one in-person meeting between supervisor and supervisee within 60 days of the beginning of the supervision relationship. And that's kind of a parallel to the, the current requirement for uh, the supervisor to get CE related to supervision. You have to do that within 60 days of the beginning of supervision. And, and that allows for people who are kind of pulled in in agency or hospital or other settings at the last minute um, so that you don't have to do a whole bunch of other stuff before you can supervise if you're needing to take over quickly. But there is a bunch of stuff you have to do within 60 days. Um, I don't really know why that in-person meeting is necessary, but I, I will take that uh, long before a 50-50 kind of approach. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Now, in, in hearing this, this sounds like we've been through one pandemic. We've seen the world transform. Have we learned nothing about the way that <laughs> commerce and healthcare has 
transformed and that many consumers are expecting us to continue to be available? I don't know that we've learned nothing. I also don't know that we have taken all of the lessons that we potentially could have taken. The BBS, to their credit, they went out and they did a, a bunch of surveys about kind of how people felt about uh, telesupervision specifically. And there is clearly not only demand, but expectation that, that the uh, current telehealth status of our work is largely here to stay and that the policies we have that govern our work should accommodate that rather than moving us backward to how things were pre-pandemic. Um, and there is some, I guess there's conflicted opinion uh, about that, but um, the hope among the majority of practitioners uh, is that we're not going to have this weird back and forth of you know, telesupervision was okay for a long time, and then it's going to be not okay for a little while, and then it's going to be okay again. I don't know if there's a way to avoid that at this point. It, it seems kind of inevitable that the the waiver is not going to go all the way through 2023. Uh, but I, I don't know how we then avoid that kind of forward and back and forward again kind of process. What what are we seeing across the country? Because I I actually right before we started recording, I, I saw something from Motivo and they had, you know, kind of all the telesupervision laws across 50 states. And I'll put that, that tool in the, the show notes. But I was noticing that it's very variable across all 50 states and even across licensure types. I mean, yeah. maybe the, so maybe the question isn't what is everybody else doing, but, but kind of digging more into this anxiety. I mean, to me, the in the in person meeting, what is it supposed to accomplish that you can't accomplish according to this theory <laughs> that maybe you don't agree with? But like, what is it supposed to accomplish, and how is it supposed to improve the supervision relationship? The theory goes that if you meet with a supervisee in person, that provides an opportunity to most effectively gauge whether they are in fact appropriate or telesupervision. That's the theory. Again, I've seen no hard evidence to back that up, and I would even argue that that's kind of the same anxiety that we saw and heard at the beginning of the, the use of telehealth in therapy, where you had a lot of practitioners saying, well, you know, it's just not the same as face-to-face. -face. There's this thing about the energy in the room, and I need to assess somebody um, in person to see their little micro expressions and, and pick up on their vibe and et cetera, et cetera. And that just has not held up to research scrutiny. Uh, telehealth provision of services seems to be every bit as effective as in-person services from the overwhelming majority of studies conducted to date. And I don't see any reason why supervision would be different in that regard, that there's somehow something magical in an in-person supervision meeting that would require that process for supervision, but that we, we don't need to do that in uh, standard telehealth care. Uh, these are in many ways parallel, but not identical processes. It's just that in both of them, it seems like we can do our jobs effectively remotely. And we have been doing that for a year and a half now. And so sometimes in these committee meetings, people will, will say things like, well, I don't want to open the floodgates. Well, that ship has sailed. The floodgates have been open for a year and a half. Yeah. And it's been fine. Mm 
I've seen no evidence that this has created some kind of a massive problem in terms of uh, supervisee misbehavior or, or treatment failure in therapy. You know, we've all been doing the best we can under really, really difficult circumstances, and it's been a, an interesting natural experiment. And the results of that experiment are that telehealth and telesupervision can be tremendously, tremendously effective and don't appear to increase risks, at least from the best information we have available now. Now, you brought up CAMPT, and CAMPT has a little bit different opinion in this, or at least based on a disciplinary action case that has a lot of nuances to it, but seems to oversimplify to be like, but there was this one discipline action actually two, because both the supervisor and the supervisee were disciplined. This case largely was, this was actually all before the pandemic even happened when, when these infractions occurred. But can you walk us through what happened and why this is pertinent in this discussion? Yeah, so the the disciplinary action that you're talking about, I, I am familiar with it. It was finalized in 2020, and you're right that it was based uh, on um, behavior that had occurred prior to the pandemic. But there is kind of separate from the rest of the, the supervision rules in California, there is this one very specific section of the California Business and Professions Code that says, and I, I'm going to quote it here because I knew we were going to be talking about it. <laughs> a trainee associate or applicant for licensure shall only perform mental health and related services at the places where their employer permits business to be conducted. That section of law is not further limited. There's no like clause after that that says, except for X, Y, and Z. So if you read that, if you take that language at face value, then as long as the employer allows and as long as the services are otherwise legally and ethically compliant, so you're still maintaining data security, you're still protecting confidentiality, you're still doing all the stuff that you are normally required to do, then it appears to be fine under the law for a supervisee to work from home. And that's in statute. That's not an emergency waiver. That That is um, the, the sort of normal case of the law as it exists right now. The disciplinary action that you're talking about, there were a lot of things going on in that case beyond just the supervisee working from home. That is one thing that was happening, but there were a lot of other shenanigans that were happening there. And when you look at the disciplinary action, it, it reflects this kind of kitchen sink approach to discipline that a lot of boards take, where they unearth as many possible violations as they can find, because that gives them some leverage in negotiating what the ultimate discipline against the licensee is going to be. So they document all these different violations. They put them in front of the administrative law judge if it gets that far, if it gets to a hearing, uh, and, and that becomes the basis for disciplinary action. In this particular case, the administrative law judge looked at the history of the law, the, the history of that clause that I just quoted, and basically came to the conclusion that, well, the legislature didn't intend to say that you can work from just anywhere. 
that's problematic. Yep. It, it is right. I mean, the, the historical record lines up with this, that uh, neither the BBS in, in running that legislation nor the legislature in making the change really intended to allow for full-time work from home. But you and I and, and other people were not expected to be psychic about what the yeah. law's intent was. We're supposed to be able to read the law, make sense of it with kind of a plain language, good faith reading, and act accordingly. And the language here quite plainly reads as though it allows work from home, including full-time work from home, if the employer allows it and if it is otherwise legally and ethically compliant. So to your question, Kurt. Well, and what, even, what is, even before you get to the question, yeah. even before you get to the question, this would also be inconsistent with many licensing boards' definition of therapy taking place where the client is located and would be completely irrelevant to where those services are being provided as far as where the, the practitioner is located. Yeah, that's right. The licensing boards and ethics codes generally take this stance that therapy happens where the client is physically located at the time of service. And that's reflected in our California telehealth laws. That's reflected in uh, professional ethics codes that quite often use that word located very intentionally and specifically. Now, that doesn't mean that boards can't restrict where the therapist is providing services from. They, they have that authority if they choose to take it on. But the California standard right now is just what I read to you. If the employer allows it, it's permitted. What was the intent? The intent was to allow for uh, supervisees to leave their agency settings to go do like home visits at client homes, uh, to work in homeless outreach, to go provide services at, at schools and other kind of third party locations where the the super excuse me the employer uh, allowed it and where they could again take those steps to protect and preserve confidentiality data security etc there's nothing in the record of that law change that really contemplates full-time work from home although there's a whole bunch of laws where we could say that the current environment the the COVID environment was not contemplated at the time that that law was created um, we we didn't anticipate being in the middle of a, of a pandemic. Yeah. Um, and so the VBS has said, well, we probably ought to go back and take a look at this language now in light of what we've seen since the pandemic of people working from home full time. But it's weird to me that they are looking at it with the potential impact of kind of walking back this allowance. When again, work from home seems to have largely been fine for a year and a half. Well, it's interesting because I, I remember when field-based services was coming about, you know, I was working in community mental health at that time, and, and there was a huge pushback from providers on how it wouldn't be as good as someone coming into the clinic. And so that's, it has that same feel to it of, well, maybe it's not good enough, but I, I think honestly, you know, the pendulums keep swinging on what's the best and all of that stuff. But, but I'm, what I'm really hearing is that the law in itself, as is currently written, provides the flexibility and creativity for employers to be adaptive and responsive to the clients they serve. And that also means they can be adaptive and responsive to the workforce and allow for 
clinicians to live where they can afford to live and do services in areas that potentially have a different lineup. You know, it to me, it just seems like walking it back would be hugely detrimental to quality of life and quality of work for clinicians, but also for access, for meeting clients where they are. I mean, it just, it seems, it seems to me that there's a lot to be worried about if this gets walked back. I agree. And a couple of people brought up uh, very eloquently the the point about um, access and equity in that uh, recent telehealth committee meeting. Um, you know, one of the great advantages of allowing work from home is that it allows clinicians to uh, provide services, even if the clinician is working from a, a rural location. And if the clinician has some kind of uh, medical or mental health issue that makes mm-hmm. it difficult for them to leave their home, you know, are, are we just telling those folks, well, uh, tough, then you, you can't work in the mental health field? Um, I don't think any of us intends that. And so the question then becomes really how much flexibility and accommodation are we supposed to or do we want to put into the law? And I like this statute as it is right now. I recognize that it it does not line up with the historical intent, uh, but I think the outcome is fantastic. My understanding of the best laws and policies are ones that are specific to what's most important, but don't get caught in the details of, you know, kind of current affairs, right? Like, so if, if we're, whether it's working in the field, whether it's working telehealth like this, the law itself provides enough guidance around it. And so to specify it becomes more time limited. It would, it would date it and it would make it, so it would have to change again soon. Whereas as it's written, it actually does what it needs to do. At least that's what I'm hearing that you're saying. Yeah. I mean, the law is intended to be revised over time. It's a, it's a living set of documents, right? And so we're always responding to uh, what's happening in the larger world around us and hopefully learning more about how professionals work, how we can best provide services. From the BBS perspective, they are fundamentally a public protection agency. So they're most interested in developing laws and regulations that keep clients safe. And, and to that end, I think we've got now a year and a half worth of data that suggests that when the therapist is working from home, that does not seem to uh, impede client safety. Now, there is still a supervisor responsibility there in terms of making sure that that supervisee really can provide a confidential and data secure environment. But to your point, Katie, I think that uh, the best laws are, are ones that Uh, both allow and enforce uh, a level of uh, appropriate professional responsibility and judgment. And so do we want to be really uh, prescriptive in terms of how supervisors are supposed to ensure that? Or do we just want to say that supervisors have that responsibility uh, of ensuring that their supervisees are providing data security, confidentiality, et cetera, uh, and, and let supervisors kind of do their jobs? Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. So I want to talk in generalities. That almost sounded like a real word. I want to talk... (laughs> generally about 
some of the disciplinary stuff that this seems to be based on, because you talked about the administrative law judge looking at the intention behind the law, but at face value, some of the concerns about oversight seems to be really the foundations of a lot of these anxieties that the some of the cardigan cartel pearl clutching seems to <laughs> be based on here. Now, my understanding is this disciplinary action is already written into law as far as the kinds of oversights that a supervisor should be having over their supervisees anyway. Am I correct in that? Yeah. So with the the disciplinary action I was talking about earlier, there there were so many um, problematic things happening uh, in terms of the supervisee sort of acting independently with the blessing of the supervisor as best as, as can be read there um, to go out and get office space and um, set things up like it was a supervisee's own business, uh, do independent billing, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, there's a lot of stuff there in terms of the oversight that the supervisor was supposed to be providing that they were not providing, apparently. And that is already in the law as far as this kind of stuff. And so if I'm hearing and making up what I have not attended this meeting, making up what I imagine that the conversation is, is, well, if there's even less oversight by not having met them physically one time, then this is going to prevent all sorts of future bad supervisee behavior. When, you know, I have a practice, I have supervisees in my practice. They can do stuff off the clock anyway, that would do any of these things anyway, that are already against the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the challenges, I think, from a, from a regulatory framework, but also for, for you and me and everybody else as supervisors, you know, we do the best we can in ensuring that the behavior of our supervisees is legally and ethically compliant. And there are those situations where, you know, there may be a disciplinary action against a supervisee, but not their supervisor, because the supervisee did go off kind of on their own, didn't tell the supervisor about the stuff they were doing. And the supervisor was providing the kind of expected and intended level of supervision. I don't think there's any amount of in-person requirement or any level of regulation that is going to effectively prevent every supervisee who has sort of ill intent from going out and doing what they decide on their own to do. I think the question becomes this balance of how much regulation do you do? Um, how prescriptive do you get in telling supervisors how to do their jobs? And what what levers do you want to pull to try to ensure that supervision happens in the way that you would like for it to happen? You know, one of the levers that you can pull is requiring a certain level of in-person supervision. But does that actually impact anything in terms of legal and ethical compliance beyond that? I don't know. It would seem with a lot of the waivers and stuff that have been in place across the country that we would not want to become overly restrictive for when and if there is a next pandemic or worldwide event. In your opinion here, 
does the direction that these discussions are going at the at the licensing board and possibly at other licensing boards across the country seem to be ignoring some of that flexibility that would allow for a profession to need to respond in an event like a pandemic if it were to happen again? Yeah, I mean, as Katie said, the the way that boards are moving and the sort of default states for, for boards across the country, it's all over the map. Um, there are some that, that really had flexible policies in place before the pandemic. Uh, there are some who I think have taken lessons from the pandemic and are wanting to move in a direction of, of flexibility. And there are others who uh, might say once the pandemic is, and take this with a giant grain of salt, more or less over, that they just want to go back to what the default state had been before then. Um, it's it's a reasonable thing to ask what should be sort of the the normal state of regulation for mental health work, and then what should be the exception, where we do things a little bit differently because an emergency demands it. I think that uh, at least the preponderance of what I've seen in in policymaking around the country boards are kind of moving in the direction of more allowance of telehealth, more uh, allowance of even temporary practice across state lines. Of course, all the professions are, are working hard on trying to improve license portability, and those are good changes. Policy does appropriately move slowly. You know, we don't want the law to be so reactive to current events that, that you're getting constant whiplash. You're being pushed and pulled in different directions based on the events of the the past few weeks or past few months. Um, But I think we are going to see some lasting change, especially around telehealth regulation. What's going to be weird, not just in California, but in a bunch of places around the country, is that with putting into policy what we've learned from the pandemic, we've got sort of this exceptional state right now where, where lots of places are still under some form of emergency authorizations. We're going to go back to the prior default state at least for a little while as new policies are being crafted, run through state legislatures and implemented. And then we're going to step forward again to a new normal that better accounts for uh, the, the flexibility that has been shown to be really effective during the pandemic. It's it is a weird forward, then back, then forward again. And I don't think every state board is going to land in the same place in terms of the adaptations they want to make on an ongoing basis. But I do think the the overall path is a good one. It's a path toward increased use of telehealth, increased authorization for telehealth. It's a path toward better license portability. It's a path toward flexibility in the supervision process. But it's not a straight line to get there. If you've hung with us this late in the episode, yeah, <laughs> the, the call to action here really is keep an eye on your licensing boards and to know that there is a lot of stuff that you might have to sit through, but could drastically impact the way that you go about your business or the way that you go about your practice. And these are the kinds of mundane things that those of us who've been in the advocacy world for a while, we hear complaints 
five, six, seven, eight years later of like, well, why didn't anybody say anything? And that could have steered a direction, you know, that prevented some of this stuff from happening. And as Dr. Caldwell is pointing out here, that for many states, this might be a forced return back to pre-pandemic ways while the legislative process catches up with some of the actions that we've been able to do during this pandemic. But go and be a part of those conversations as that legislation is being crafted. So that way you can actually talk with licensing boards, lawmakers about how this has played out in the real world. And that is something that is tremendously impactful when talking with uh, people like politicians who have no idea about what we do. So thank you for spending some time with us today. And where can people find out more about you and the stuff that you're working on? They can find out more about me and my stuff at simplepracticelearning.com. And just I want to thank you both, as always, for for having me on. These are really important conversations to have. And I, I, I couldn't have said that better, Kurt. If, if folks want to know what policy changes are coming down the pike, show up. Uh, come to these meetings. It's it's not unusual that we will hear from people that a change takes effect saying, what? How, how did this happen? I didn't know about this. Well, if you go to your board meetings, you can know about those changes a year or more ahead of time. And in fact, you can have real influence on what those changes are going to look like. Um, I, I love it when more folks come to these board meetings. It, it makes for better conversation and more informed decision making for everybody. And it's probably a little less boring for you. It is a lot less boring. <laughs> and listen, like like in Parks and Rec, people sometimes will show up with the most off-the-wall, uh, wild comments that have nothing to do with anything. And it, there is, I'll admit, this certain part of my heart that is is warmed when that happens. <laughs> I've got my, my marching orders. I'll be there next time. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Rodoy and Dr. Ben Caldwell. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.